All right. Welcome back to the Mindful Hunter podcast. I'm your host as always, Jay Nickel. This is episode number 22. I'm here with my buddy, Adam, who goes by the name Four Point Outdoors on Instagram. And we're just going to have a bit of a bullshit and we're going to talk about hunting. We were just kind of gabbing before I hit record. And I think the goal here is give a little bit of Adam's background, how he got into hunting, why he does it, what he likes about it, what he gets out of it. Maybe tell a couple hunting stories if they come up organically, and then maybe dive into some black hunt or blacktail hunting tactics, and then maybe close out with some tips for the LEH, seeing as that's kind of what's on everybody's mind these days. So first of all, Adam, thanks, man. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me on. This is awesome. So funny story. We actually met through binoculars. We did. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I was selling a pair of Zeiss Conquests and Adam hit me up, pretty aggressively negotiated me down a couple bucks and uh, we met. And it was funny because you'd actually watched my review on YouTube that I did of the binoculars and then ended up adding each other on Instagram afterwards. And I was like, holy shit, man, like dude is legit. Like you to me are like that quintessential BC hunter. Like if, if somebody didn't know you, you'd have no way of knowing that. And I don't want to blow you up too hard and make you feel uncomfortable, but like you've done some really phenomenal, like, like homegrown BC hunting. Like you've kind of spanned a few different species and you wouldn't know it to know you. Like, it's not like the defining characteristic. You don't feel the need to like yell it from the rooftops. I think you've got a I really like the vibe and the kind of ethos of your Instagram, but you're not like trying to get sponsored or throwing up videos all the time. Like it, you're, it's, it's like you're, you're an understated homegrown BC hunter is what I would say. <laughs> Thanks, man. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, like I started that Instagram page. Oh, it's only been like a year and a bit. Okay. More so just to like keep a timeline of everything. Right. Um, and uh, kind of just share what I'm doing out there. So let's, let's set some context now. How old are you now? I'm 33. Okay. And what, do you come from a hunting family? Uh, my dad hunted, he grew up in Saskatchewan and then okay. moved to BC when I was like one. Okay. Um, so like my hunting upbringing, I always heard the stories of like them bow hunting in the uh, um, sand fields of Saskatchewan and the sand hills story and stuff like that. And all the big deer that they saw and everything like that. Uh, and then we were big into archery when I was growing up. So I did lots of archery competitions and tournaments and things like that. And then started uh, whitetail hunting with my bow, with my dad. That was like my first kick at hunting. And have you guys always been in the valley or were you somebody or were you somewhere else first? Yeah, pretty much always in the valley. Yeah, pretty much growing up in Chilliwack my whole life. And so we'd travel kind of all over and do the whitetail thing with like in December after rifle season closed with our bow. Yep. And I mean, I, I, I shot like one spike buck and everything else, like the does were open for our tree then. And, uh, that's kind of, we just kind of went and filled the freezers and, um, that's really all I had for hunting growing up. And it was truck hunting, right. It was December. I was young. So drive around, see a deer, try and make a play like with archery. So, well, so you wouldn't even stand hunt. You were literally like road yeah, hunting we did. type of deal. Pretty much. Yeah. Like, and then we did some, like we'd walk and stuff like that. But again, I was pretty young. Like that was like my right start getting into hunting. Um, and then once I kind of got a little bit older, um, I went away for work and a bunch of things and kind of didn't really hunt much up till probably, I'd probably say eight years ago, kind of okay. started getting back into it. Um, and at that, like I did a, a backpack Alpine mule deer hunt and that was my first time 
backpacking, first time everything. And I managed to get a four point muley in the velvet. Man. Since then, it's uh, it's just been kind of all I want to do. Just that the adventure part of it, right? Like the backpacking. So how did that? Because what I hear a lot from people. So my background is a forestry engineer. So when I when I went to do my first backpack hunt, it didn't really seem that intimidating to me because I'd spent a lot of time in the mountains. But what I get the most from people is like that's a big leap if you've never spent a lot of time in the mountains. So how difficult did you find, and maybe with because you spent some time with your dad, you also felt like it wasn't like that, but talk me through like even some of the psychological challenges or the gear challenges, like how difficult was that first true Alpine hunt to go and do? Uh, I was with a buddy who had done it he maybe once before. Okay. Um, and he just kind of like, he never got one, but it was, he did like a scouting trip kind of thing. And the first time it was like, yeah, like I had my backpack that I used when I went to Thailand for a couple months and I just like rounded up some gear that was probably all way too heavy and nowhere near good enough for what we were doing. And we hiked up for, it took us when it was six or eight hours to hike into the, where we wanted to go. And that night, uh, it was the day before the opener, glassed up some bucks and went to sleep and woke up and went and got one. Uh, and looking back on it, like, did everything wrong. Like from how we were glassing to where we camped to like, once the deer was down, like I said, it was, it's probably 10 years before that, that I shot my last deer. Right. And uh, my buddy, he'd done a little bit of hunting, but like, we didn't know what we were doing at all. Like we ended up bringing the deer into the bush. We literally had some rope. We cut it in half and tried to, we knew we had to bone it out, but had no idea how to. So we just like started hacking off meat filled the game bags. Like we just made sausage with it. So like nothing went to waste, but there was yep. no roast if you wanted one, like we had no idea what we were doing uh, and packed it down with camp. And it was like, it was hard and it hurt. And then I just remember like when we got back to the, uh, where we parked his side by side, it was just like that. It was just so cool to have like completed something, you know, like, and it, it's that like the adventure part that like drives it. A hundred percent, man. See, I, lo- I love this story for a couple of reasons. Cause in addition to, to hunting, like, I like working out and training. And I find in both areas, people like younger people who are just getting into it, get so focused on shit that doesn't actually matter. And if you're just like, if you just go do something, do you know what I mean? Like just go figure it out. But I almost feel like there's this hesitation from people these days because they want everything to be perfect or they want to know all like, Oh yeah, but what are the perfect boots? And it's like, it doesn't matter. Just put on a pair of boots. Yeah. You might get some blisters. You're going to go through three pair of boots before you even find out what boots you like anyways. So like, like, and I, I just love the fact that you were just like, yeah, man, let's just do it. Because I think, I mean, that's the best way to start learning how to do all this stuff anyways. Absolutely. And then it makes like, I'm definitely a gear junkie. I'm buying and selling gear all the time and like always looking for what's better, but having done it with gear, that's not made for it, like carrying 80, 90, hundred pounds in a cheap backpack that I used in Thailand and like knowing how, like what that felt like to now, like having a decent, like having a good pack that's meant to haul weight. It just, you kind of shows you everything about it. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so where, so that's like eight, nine years ago. Yeah. That first sure. Alpine hunt. So where do yeah. we go from there? Oh, from there, like we kept trying and, um, we de- definitely, it was mostly mule deer focused and then okay. springtime, it was like, get out of the house. Let's go bear hunting. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I have got a couple of bears um, and they were like mostly kind of close to roads, like in the springtime, you're in the bottom, right? Because every deer or every animal I've ever shot, except for a bear, has come out in my pack. I've never shot a deer that I didn't have to like back back out. Okay. Um, so from there, it was just like more deer, more alpine deer. And then uh, decided after a while, like started hearing about some buddies that were doing sheep hunts. And uh, me and actually the same guy that I would, I've done all these hunts with, we went up and decided we were going to go stone sheep hunting. Um, did a bunch of research and kind of, again, like all our gear had upgraded for sure, but like neither one of us had, had really had a good grasp on how to sheep hunt. And, uh, that's probably my biggest, I'll probably never have luck like that again. We went up and, uh, hiked in. And this is just an over the counter tag or did you have a draw? Nope. Just over the counter tag. We both bought sheep tags and drove up. You just walked in. Yeah. We just parked and hiked in. Yeah. I love Uh, it. I love it. It was, uh, I got off a night shift and we left and 24 hours later we were hiking and uh then on the next day which would have been our first full day of the hunt um spotted a ram so first full day first stock and uh, i shot my stone sheep oh my god so uh, first we got the deer that you basically wake up and shoot and now we got the sheep so you basically have a horseshoe stuck up your ass i think it's gone now like that (laughs) there's there's no way that can continue but yeah and the i mean the sheep was busted off halfway on one side. I, I have photos of it there on my page, but the other side, he was broomed off. Um, so it was a super scary one because I did tons of research on how to age rams and everything. And my biggest thing was I don't want to be the guy that shoots an illegal ram. Like yeah. I want a ram really bad, but more than that, I do not want to shoot one that wasn't legal. Uh, and the way this stock worked out, I, I, I shot him at 45 yards and uh, had him in the spotting scope, counted, he had 10 rings left on his one side. Uh, and uh, so I counted like so many times. And uh, so I, I took him and uh, yeah, it was awesome. The biologist figured he was between 12 and 13 because he groomed Shit. off so far. And the other side, like he was completely broken halfway up. So I knew he wasn't full curl. Yep. So it was a pretty scary first round, but yeah. Uh, yeah. Things like no, that. It, it was, it, it's funny. I was just mentioning this when we hopped on, but for anybody listening, last podcast will have been one I did with Clay Lancaster. And for anybody who don't doesn't know, Clay is guided and taken somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 sheep. Wow. Um, so Clay and his brother, Jim, own Nahani Butte Outfitters in the NWT. And I think they have something like, it's like 2 million acres or something. Like it's insane. Like part of it was taken for a provincial park and there's still enough of it left that you wouldn't be able to stand in one place and see it all. Like it's a significant portion of the province. Like it's a gigantic track of land and they do sheep, goat, moose, uh, caribou, and that might be it. But the whole Lancaster family, they've got Copper River Outfitting and then an Obart Lancaster has another outfitting, another outfit. And then Clay also guides sheep in Mexico in the, in the winter. And he's kind of widely regarded. I would say as if he's not one of the most widely regarded kind of aging experts, he is the guru of sheep aging. 
So the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia just had their big annual conference and it was online and Clay was good enough to basically do this 45 minute hour long video on how to age sheep. And because I'm going on my first sheep hunt this summer, I wanted to, this is, this is my concern, man. And what I've learned since doing this, and it's funny because I think you voiced the same thing, maybe even without recognizing what you were voicing. There's this, I'm going out and I want my first sheep. And some of what I hear from people is like, I want to be able to age sheep so that I can increase my opportunity by taking as, as many sheep as possible right down to the edge. Like I want to be able to call that eight-year-old or see that guy that just breaks full core, full curl by a quarter inch so I can have the greatest opportunity of taking a sheep. And what I really took away from the conversation with Clay is we got to be thinking differently about it. And I, I think you, this is how you were thinking about it. We should be trying to take the, the, the oldest, maturest rams that we possibly can. Like we have a responsibility as hunters. Like we're the ones who are going to dictate what the sheep population looks like moving forward for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And the way we're going to do that is by thoughtful selection of the sheep that we kill. Um, and so that's the other thing I'm trying to kind of wrap my head around first. Like I, I really want to come home with a sheep, but like, I, I don't need to be able to take in some barely legal thing. And Clay was pretty cool. He's like, listen to anybody who's listening. If it's your first sheep, I don't care what you kill. As long as it's legal, go nuts, go to town party. It's those guys that go out like two to three years and they bring back the like just barely legal Ram two, three times in a row. And he made a really good point. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you're not in, you're, you're not making it any more difficult for yourself. You're not contributing to the health of the population. Anyways, I don't mean to go on a, on a, on a big rant about that, but it's just, mm -hmm. it's so respectful that, I mean, it's impressive that you, you kill the sheep on your first time, but then to have it to be such a mature ram, like, I just think that's like a whole other level to it. Killing something just barely legal while it's totally acceptable and legal. And if you're early on in your career, I, I told, it's like a spike buck. If it, if I was taking a new hunter out and he wanted to shoot a spike buck and it's, and it's legal in the regs, fill your boots, man. I totally support that. The bios think that this population can support having some spike bucks killed, then go ahead. But like, am I going to go out and shoot a spike buck? With, I'm like, I'm not, I would just, it's just not something that, that interests me personally. Yeah, for sure. No, that makes perfect sense. And then Last year, we went sheep hunting again and had a group of three seven-year-olds in front of me, super wide. Like I got to within 400 yards of them, sat there with the spotting scope and they just weren't like, I couldn't, I couldn't confidently call it. Right. Yeah. And then there was one there that was double broomed and I could count seven for sure. And I was pretty sure he broomed one or two rings off, but I didn't know if like those count or do they not? Like I had nothing, I didn't know. So like we didn't didn't do anything about it. And then you come home and you show people that have done it a lot more and they're like, Oh, that one's legal. That one's legal. And you're like, Oh man. But, but in the, in the moment, like if I, if you're not sure you can't, you can't do it. I have so much more respect for the guy who brings back a picture and said, I, I don't know, man, I, I didn't want to take a chance. And they've, they've got a half a dozen legal sheeps than the guy who, who maybe shoots that accidental one. I actually sent an email to Bill Jex, who I think is like the head bio for Northern BC um, cause I was going to have him come on. Um, but Clay came on and said, anyways, what I want to ask him is, and maybe, you know, the, do you have any idea how many underage Rams get taken every year? 
I, I don't have like a, like I, a I don't have any number. idea either. Somebody told me it's on the rise and it wouldn't surprise me with the kind of um, increase of presence of social media and how pressured everybody is these days to like throw up a picture on Instagram. Like I could see people being a little bit less discerning, trying to bring something down. And then after the fact, finding out. And here's an interesting thing I just learned. Okay. So for a thin horn ram, which is primarily what we're going to be shooting with over the counter tags, because it's stone sheep and most of our over the counter, well, I guess is all, all our over the counter is, is stones, isn't it? Or can we do uh, no, you think There's California in okay. uh, region three and like the, the Kamloops Lake, that's okay. all LEH, but there is regions that are uh, open season, but it's full curl on the bighorn. So okay. it's, it's super hard. Like yeah. you hear a couple get taken every year in the province that like you hear about, but yeah. guys spend a lot of time. And, yeah. And uh, I hear a lot of the outfitters get them too, because they're the ones who are kind of like scouting them and sitting on them all year. So then when the season opens, they know where those Rams are and everybody else right. is kind and of And I playing. think they have some three quarter curl tags too. Like that's what the LEH is. Cause some of those big horns, they broom so much that they'll never, never get to curl. Yeah. So you can have a huge massive Ram. That's only three quarter. Um, well, so that's and, what the uh, LEH tags for there, I think. Right. Totally. And again, Three quarter curl, as long as the thing is like nine, 10, 11 years old, like who gives a shit if the curl comes all the way around? Like that's a mature ram and you should feel good about taking it. But one of the interesting things about the regulation so for a thin horn, for the listeners, that would be a stone sheep or a doll sheep. The, to be considered for full curl, you have to physically break the plane of the nose. For a big horn, you only have to break the line between the nostril and the eyeball, and the nose goes kind of up and over. So you don't actually have to break it. But one of the things I found out this week is that some thin horns, instead of coming down and like coming straight out and breaking full curl, they will come back in. And if they come back in and almost think about it, making a full circle and pointing back into the base of the horn, because that doesn't technically break the plane of the nose, that's not a full curl ram. So if that ram is seven years old, and he curls back into his eye, they're going to take your sheep. Right. Yeah. So I thought that was, you know, which is even more kind of uh, like more of a good reason to like, instead of trying to shoot something barely legal, like if you're like, oh, is it seven? Is it eight? I'd rather be like, you saw, like I can see 10. Like, yeah. listen, this, this is a sheep that, that I can shoot with a clear conscience. I've heard so many people that walk from when they pull the trigger, like walking that 400 yards over the sheep is like the longest. It's like a, that oh, yeah. last mile going to a death sentence. Like it's yeah. just brutal. Oh, same as mine. Like I, like I said, I counted multiple times. And the first thing I did, like, I wasn't like, Oh, this is awesome. I'm like one, two, three, four. Right. And you're counting. Yeah. And if I didn't have, like I said, and I'm, I was a new sheep hunter. I still am. If I didn't have 10, like, even if I could count nine, you hear like the false rings, yeah. all that, like, I would just feel horrible. So I had for sure 10 and uh, yeah, they were all real. So I was like, well, I got a little wiggle room here. If one of those is fake, yeah. um, like a, a false ring. Sorry. So that's yeah, awesome. It's a, it's a game all in itself. Like it's a, it's a, there's so much to learn with every species. So let's, t- let's transition a little bit to blacktail because that's kind of like a little bit closer to home for, for both of us. What's your, um, yeah. What's your experience and what's your thoughts on blacktail? Because I find like everybody knows mule deer and everybody hunts 
mule deer and I get it. I like hunting mule deer too, but to me, the blacktail are like a total, uh, even though I know they're not a totally different animal, they also are a totally different animal. Like the areas that they live in and the way they behave, like it, uh, to me, they're such a more difficult animal to hunt. And I, I don't want to be like ethnocentric about it and say like one animal is better than another, but I don't know. There's just something about blacktail hunting to me. And, and you kind of got to be from the lower mainland to get it. Um, but yeah, I'd love to talk a little bit just about blacktail in general. Yeah, it's uh, it. Part of it started with my schedule. Like I have some time off during the week. I have a rotating schedule. So to do these big mule deer hunts, that like requires a hunting partner and like a, a couple of days. And then I started like learning and like there, you've probably heard of uh, Pro Guide 66. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Steve Isdale. Steve. Yeah. I probably pronounced his last name wrong, but uh, found him on like Hunting BC a long time ago when he was talking about blacktails. And it just like, I was kind of like, wow, that is cool. And then started like, trying to blacktail hunt. And, um, yeah, once I started, it was like I said, it's like no other type of hunting. It's no, you'll hunt for five, six, seven days, like not in a row. Like I kind of go and then I go back to work or whatever, but not even see a deer. Um, and, and you talk to a lot of people and they just quit because it sucks. Like the train sucks. It's always raining. It's steep. Like there's nothing comfortable about it but it's nice when it's you can do it in a day trip because you go out you get soaked you suck it up and you come home and dry out yeah like uh, a, a week-long blacktail hunt out of a backpack would be a oh. that would be that would be a test i don't know how like i said i only i only ever day hunt them i i haven't done an overnight blacktail hunt um but just started learning about them and then uh, i kind of got the trail cam bug um which i mean i know there's different thoughts on trail cameras and stuff but I've never shot a blacktail that's been even within a kilometer of my cameras. Huh. Um, but the thing that I love about the cameras is you go check them and you're like, there's actually deer here. Yeah. Whereas if some of the spots that I hunt, if I didn't have trail cameras, I like the one, the one buck that I got this last year, I uh, didn't have on camera for the last four years. I've never seen them. I've like, and most of those bucks and like in the, in the start, the first couple of years, I get all these deer on trail camera, never even lay eyes on any of them. Like didn't see a buck all year. And then you kind of like learn some things and do some more research and like, it's all about wind. It's all about like, and, and you can't pattern them. Like they're never just cause you see it in this spot today, tomorrow it's on the other side of the mountain. So it's, it's, it's so hard and tricky. Uh, I think is what really draws me to it. I think people underestimate how nocturnal blacktail are compared to other deer species oh yeah and then like, until you get and you know that through the trail cam footage like you will get all these nighttime pictures and like maybe early season you'll get a few like day but like as soon as like september kind of rolls around it's like the day pictures are just done yeah even even in the like summer yeah. very few daytime pictures and then all hunting season none and then you might l get lucky in like the first two weeks of november and catch one walking by the camera um, but yeah, everything's nighttime pictures, which is, yeah, it's crazy how, how, how that makes it so difficult. Right. Yeah. It's, it's so hilarious. Your story. And I had no idea what got you into it, but it mimicked mine identical. I used to be able to like take a Thursday off work and I was living in Fort Langley and I'd kind of head out behind Chilliwack up into the mountains. And the other thing that I loved, like it gave me the feeling of a backpack hunt in like a day Absolutely. because as soon as you get a quarter mile off any of those 
like logging roads, you might as well be uh, up in Fort Nelson or something. Like you, you, it, just, just zero sign of civilization. You can't hear anything. You can't see anything. And it's like, it gave me that feeling of like separation from everything. And when I came out at the end of the day, it almost felt like I was coming back to the world after a backpack hunt. Like you yeah. really get that psychological break. Absolutely. And like I said, you're every, and with the blacktails, like I've never seen one on the road. Like I do, I quad up and like, if I can only have time for a half day on, I like take the bolt out of my rifle, put my gun lock on, stop in the mountain, when I get back to the quad and quad, quad down. Like I've never seen one from my quad. Yeah. And so, and like I said, it is a backpack hunt because everyone I've got, like if you're 500 meters kilometer from the quad, like you're not dragging it back. No. Like it, it's so thick and all the fall down and everything. So it's everything's you quarter it up and throw it in the pack and come out. It's nice that you don't have camp with you. Yes. But still like last year, that big one that I, I managed to track down, I weighed my pack when I got home and it, I had a 119 pound pack. That's brutal. Like, okay, so did I, you bone them out? I did. Yeah. Yeah. See, I, my first real black tail I got in the mountains, I didn't, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I don't even, I don't even want to hazard a guess at what that pack weighed. I, I bone them out now, obviously. Um, but that was I, all my gear too. Like that was what I, my right sure. and like what I had strapped on my pack. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, in those conditions and like I've everywhere I go, I have crampons with me. Like, huh. It's so steep that like without crampons, you've like, I you get away with those, uh, micro spikes, but the yeah. second you get any snow, they fill up with with snow and then you're just falling. So I, I have like full on mountaineering crampons that are always in my pack when I'm hunting blacktail. That is a great tip, man. I, I took those in the woods for me for my goat hunt this year for the first time. Um, but I've never taken them blacktail hunting with me because I used to be in forest. You would have to wear corks. Um, right. So I've hunted in those a few times and that was certainly nice. Although they, they wouldn't really do you much good in winter. Cause like the micro spikes, they would just right. they would fill up with snow. I think the thing that people don't recognize is the amount of persistence blacktail hunting teaches you. Like I can remember watching videos of guys on YouTube and they're like getting depressed because they haven't seen an animal in a day. And it's like my, my biggest blacktail, which is nowhere near your, your biggest blacktail. I put in 25 days that year. Like, and it was the only deer I saw. Yeah. 25 days over a course of like two and a half months. We're talking like late August to like late October. Um, and good days. Do you know what I mean? Like ball busting days, trail camp, like everything. And I saw one deer the whole time. And it's like, you got to keep convincing yourself to like get up and go hunt. And I think your point about the trail cameras, just at least giving you confidence that they're deer in the area is such an important point to make because it's one of the only animals where you have no, because the trails are so fine. They're not patternable. So you're not finding big heaps of fresh sign everywhere. Like when you're in elk area, there's yeah. Elk are here. Like there, you don't have to see an elk to know there's elk around blacktail are completely different. And I think it's hard to, to kind of overemphasize how much that helps your psychology. Like when I know I'm in an area with animals, I'm fine. I'll just keep putting one foot in front of the other and going until I find something. What really starts to erode your confidence is like, oh, I mean, maybe there's animals here. Maybe there isn't. I don't know. Maybe I'm wasting my time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, absolutely. And then with like with the blacktails, and as I've learned it with them, it's huge on any animal is like the wind. 
I remember I used to never, I'd be like, oh, well, I'm quite a ways. I can probably go this way or shortcut or, and you just, sometimes you'll have, like, you can see fresh sign and you never see a deer. Right. And you're just like, the wind is just going the wrong way. So playing the wind with the black, in that, in that big, thick timber, like, it'll feel like there's no wind. So then it's super hard. So I actually buy those uh, disposable vape pens and uh, put it backwards. So you blow through it. And then okay. you get the smoke, like the vape comes out of the other end. And then you can see exactly which way the wind's just super gently going and yeah. make sure you're always going into it. That's a really good idea. I have the wind checker that I use for um, when I hunt elk kind of does the kind of right. does the But again, thing. in the pouring down rain in the blacktail, it always gets clogged up and you can oh, never shit. work. Right. I didn't even think about that. So that's why I was like, man, this thing never, it's always clogged, soaking wet in your pocket or whatever. Right. So yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea, man. Um, while we're on the topic of like boning out and stuff, do you got any tips for people or like, cause you talked about how poor a job you did of processing your first mule deer. Yeah. And now you, you're probably like a, like a scientist with how specific you are about everything. So what's that actual process been like? And, and what kind of things would you pass on to people or newer guys getting into it about just field processing? Cause that's something I just don't think people think especially if they're whitetail guys, because they're used to like pulling it out on a sled and hanging it up. And it's like, all of a sudden you're by yourself and a big black tail is, you're not going to haul them up into a tree by yourself. Right. Um, and so, yeah, talk about that a little bit. For sure. Uh, it definitely all started on YouTube, right? Like learning the gutless method and uh, what was in, like included in that and how to do that. Uh, and just watched it. And I, I think I had an app at the time that I could like, like download or something. So I remember I, like, I'd have it on my phone and I would like watch it. Just like, you know, if you do something on your truck, you watch the YouTube video and you just pause it and you do that part and then you pause it and yeah. you do the next part. Uh, kind of like that. And then like, there's some awesome videos on YouTube of the gutless method. I, I, I don't know whose it was, but the one was of an antelope and the guy just went through everything. And then right, right down to the deboning. And I just watched it tons of times and tried to, and then when you get out there, like try and just do the exact same way. And uh, once you do it once properly, you just like, even like the deboning, like you just find the seams in the meat. So you're not actually cutting the muscle. You're just pulling it apart and finding the bone and pulling it all out and everything. And, and a, a big thing is learning how to do it by yourself. Like right. if you had that third hand, like just hold this leg, like it's, you're bending with your knee and trying to, it's, yeah, it's difficult, but uh, definitely takes some practice. Um, but I would just say that, research as much as you can. Yeah. I actually had an iPad with me for the first couple of deer and I did the same thing as you did. And I forget whose it was I downloaded, but literally downloaded a YouTube video right to the iPad. And I was just yeah. sitting there with the deer, look at a little bit of the video. And then I loved what you said about the seams of the meat because it's such, it's once you get into it, it's like, listen, I don't know what any of this shit is called. I don't. No. It's one of like my notes to myself that I really want to spend some more time. So I know what the different roasts are and where the different steaks come from. I right. just know what makes a steak, what makes a roast and what I'm going to grind. Right. Um, but even when you're making roasts and cutting steaks and even when you're field processing, once you get in there with your hands, you're like, oh, this is all very logical. Like it, it makes a lot of sense. Like you can see where the seams are and you just pull it apart and then the different roasts kind of fall down and like a backstrap makes a whole lot of sense. Like once you figure out how to kind of lift it up and just kind of chink away at it and it pulls out all clean. Like 
it's not, you don't have to know technically what you're even doing. You just kind of follow, you break. I like, I like when people use the term breaking the animal down. Cause I really do feel like when you do it right, it was just a bunch of pieces that were stuck together. And then you just separated all the pieces. For sure. And I was trying like, get your quarters off, get all your big chunks off and laid out. I was a bunch of garbage bags or snow or depending like where you are and how it's going. And then uh, once you get everything off and it's cooling down, then you get a little more time and then you debone everything and load your pack and get ready for the hike out. So are you a meat shelf guy or are you like a contractor bag in the bag kind of guy or somewhere in between? I'd say somewhere in between. Like I have a, I have a mystery ranch pack, so it comes apart. So it's made to have like the meat shelf on the back. Yep. Uh, and I got some like boned out game bags that I use now. Um, so I like to wrap those in garbage bags. At, like once they're in the game bags, just so I don't get everything so covered in blood all the sure. time. Um, but no, I definitely like take the bag all, all apart and get everything kind of in the middle is in the right spot and strap everything down as best you can. Um, yeah, that's kind of how I do it. Yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So while we're on the top, let's, let's talk a couple of, of, of gear things. What's been your kind of progression in it? Let's focus on backpacks first. What's been your kind of progression and, and why do you like what you like now? Um, yeah, like I said, definitely gear junkie. So I'm always wanting to try new things and, you know, latest and greatest. And I mean, sometimes that doesn't work either. Yeah. Um, I definitely, I, I got a, uh, a Kuyu pack. It was the one I used for a long time and I really, I really liked it, but it just, it didn't fit me that well. Um, and actually I had a buddy, I went and helped him pack out a deer and he had a mystery ranch pack. So I tried that on. Um, and, uh, it was so much nicer than my previous pack. So I ordered one of those and that's what I've been using for the last two or three years now is my mystery ranch pack. Um, and it's, yeah, just getting everything adjusted, like learning how to load it and learning how to fit your pack to yourself is huge. Like when I first got it, I put like 60 pounds and go do stairs and then like move the, like make it half an inch longer and then do it and make it half an inch shorter. And like, it's crazy how all those small adjustments just make it carry better once you figure out where it's supposed to be. Yeah. And I just, that general principle of taking the time to get to know your gear and know how it fits. I've never run a mystery ranch before. I'm a Kafaru guy, but those bags are actually quite similar. Um, and I've heard a lot of really good stuff about mystery ranch bags. The thing I've heard about the Kuyu is that they tend to also be pretty floppy. I'm a fan of lightweight until you start paying a penalty in performance. Right. From because my, my I run a fulcrum from Kafaru, which with my guide lid is like 9,200 cubic inches. Like right. it's gigantic. I think my pack and my frame probably weighs in the neighborhood of seven pounds. Yeah. And, and a lot that. of people would say, like, why aren't you wearing a lighter bag? And it's because well, when when I put a hundred pounds in a seven-pound bag, it feels like 80 pounds. And when I put a hundred pounds in a four-pound bag, it feels like 150 pounds. And right. so I'm going more for like the functional performance of the bag and numbers are important and I'm going to pay attention to them. But I do find when people take that ultra light and that's why I'm also a fan of mystery ranch. Cause I think they run that kind of nice blend between yeah. lightweight and ultra light. And, and I think people tend to get a little too hung up on that ultra light end. For sure. And like I, said, I use that same pack for everything. Like I know a lot of guys they'll want to like get a smaller pack for their day hunts uh, I, I have the Mystery Ranch Marshalls. It's the biggest one they make. I just 
take all those straps and tighten everything up as tight as it can go. And when I go on my day hunt, I use my lid and the two pockets on the outside. And if I get something, it'll go on the inside, but I just suck it all down. Cause I mean, when I'm going out for a day hunt, I could save a pound and a half by buying a lighter pack to put on that frame. Then I'm switching it out all the time. If I'm going for a day hunt, I don't have any gear with me anyway. So the extra pound, like I could, I don't care about that pound. So I just cinch everything up. And then when I do go on a, a week long hunt, I got all the room. Like all the room I, I couldn't do. agree more. I do the exact same. And it's your Marshall kind of sounds like my fulcrum. So my fulcrum has these two wing pockets. Yeah. Norm, and when you fill up the big tube, normally they strap to the outside and they've got a second set of compression straps. But if you just collapse the main bag, the two wing pockets fold right on front. And that's exactly what I do. I'll put like, let's say my kill kit and a couple other things in the bottom yeah. of the main tube. Cause it's like, I know I'm not going to need to access those. But then everything else I need for the t- for the day just goes in the two wing pockets and up on the main lid. Everything gets strapped down. I, I couldn't agree more that the one secondary pack I have is for training because I do like the Outdoorsman's Atlas system to put that Olympic plate I've seen on the that. back. Awesome. The only problem is, so the first bag I bought, the first true hunting backpack I bought was the Outdoorsman's, they call it the Long Range Hunter. Their frame is the same for all of their bags but they kind of have the the optics and the long range optics. So it's just a bigger and a littler bag. And I bought the bigger bag and it was, I like the outdoorsman systems and it's okay. It's just not on the level as far as like a, a Kafaru or a mystery right. ranch or you, stone glacier also look really nice. I wouldn't mind trying one of those, but they're ones I worry a little bit that they, they get a little too far to that ultra light end of the spectrum, but there's a lot of people that like them. But anyways, it was an okay bag. Um, But when they came out with the Atlas system, which is essentially just a post that bolts to the back of like their plastic exo frame, it was only an extra hundred bucks. So it was kind of a no brainer that for a hundred bucks, I could have a second training bag. But if you, if you go to buy it from scratch, you're looking at like six, six fifty Canadian. And it's like, that's a lot for like, I can just chuck some sandbags in the back of my other backpack. Mm -hmm. So I, it's it's unfortunate that there isn't. I'd like to see without that hard echo for ecto frame though. I don't know how other backpack companies would. What's your answer to that? Do you just use like sandbags or something when you want to train? So I take like right now my pack is completely off the bag, and okay. I either use like the forty five pound Olympic plates, or I just have like a big like a you know like the I don't know if it's a CrossFit sandbag with a big sandbag with handles on it. Yep. And I take the pack right off and then I just strap that. It has some straps on the actual frame. Sure. So I strap it like as tight to the frame as I can. And it, it stays there pretty good, but having that post, it would, it would be easier. Like it takes more time to strap something onto the frame. Sure. Um, but on that mystery ranch, it stays on there pretty good for all my uh, preseason training. That's awesome. And then I guess once you get into season, you kind of don't worry about training so much. So you just dump that off, right. put the bag back on. And by then you're hiking around enough in the mountains. Once like summer shows up and you're doing trail cams and all the rest of it, you're getting yeah, enough serious. exercise, just, just being out there. As soon as the snow comes down enough, uh, like I, and I, it always my- surprises me how long it stays up there. I like I, I do quite a bit of Squamish stuff. I, I haven't yeah. the last year or two, just because I've been too busy and I've been doing more of the big hunts. But because I'm downtown in Vancouver now, I tend to hunt Squamish o- over Chilliwack and I'll think I'm golden. It'll be like the second week of June and yeah. I'll get halfway up the FSR and I'm, fu- I'm like, fuck man, <laughs> like, there's two feet of snow up here still. Yeah. yeah and it's always that bug because you want to go check them because I, yeah. like, I leave mine out all year. 
So when I'm done hunting, like it's interesting to see what comes through and how much snow they actually push through. Crazy. And uh, you try and get up there and you end up, yeah, I always go way too early. Always, always. That's what we do though. That's yeah. another, that's Steve Isdall guy. He's an interesting character. I will say that, but like that dude gets after it, man. He's already been out checking cams and all the rest of it. And it's like, I know where he lives and I know where he's hiking into. And it's like, that is not nice territory this time of year. Right. Yeah. And he's got some, uh, well, tons of, tons of content that he shares for oh. sure. And I would say like definitely the biggest influence or whatever to blacktail is like having all those videos. And like, once you start getting interested and then you watch those videos, you're like, Oh, wow. That changed uh, everything for me, man. So I'll tell the story of like my first real blacktail. Cause the other thing was I, um, I lived on Haida Gwaii for two years. So I've shot a shitload of Sitka blacktail. And I just want to be clear with people because there's a Sitka blacktail, which is an island deer. And then there's Columbia blacktail, which is what we hunt here in the lower mainland. And it's tricky too in BC because it's the same Columbia blacktail that they hunt in Oregon and, and California and even Washington. But like the California blacktail are giants yeah, compared to... They're like mule deer size. I'm like, they're like 160s and shit. It's like, Jesus, man, like... Yeah. Our blacktail are not la- like, what would you say? Like a 140 blacktail would be a giant, wouldn't he? Oh, yeah. Like all the deer. I like, so BC, the book is 115 to make yeah. the BC record book. Yeah. Uh, I've never broken it. I've got three, three bucks that are within two inches of it. Oh, um, but uh, so again, like, it's not about getting your name in the book, but that's like, it's like, I want to break this. Getting number, that close. Right? Yeah. That's okay. You're allowed. Yeah. When you get that close and you're like, this is the one and it's not. Um, oh, but a man. good buddy of mine shot one this year. That's got to be in the, like the one forties and like the buck he shot. I've never even seen one like that on trail cam. Oh. Like I don't, I don't have any trail cam pictures of these huge bucks that like, they're so rare and it's few crazy. And I mean, those massive black tails, but and there. I think there's, you, you gotta have the bug. Cause it's the same. I like hunting coos deer and like, they're not, if you, if you don't know coos deers, like they're not impressive at all. And I feel the same way about blacktail. Like if you show a blacktail to like an, if you saw a giant mule deer, like one of those crazy Utah mule deer, it, you can show that to anybody. And they're right. going to be like, holy shit, man, that thing's crazy looking. You show a crazy blacktail to somebody and it kind of just looks like an average deer. Oh. But when you have that blacktail bug and you get like those chocolate horns and they're like, he's got the mass and you're just like, I don't know, man. There's just something that's, even though it's not objectively impressive compared to a mule deer, there's just something different about it that it lands differently for me. If you know what a blacktail looks like, like, yes, like I've got mule deer, even like a small four point mule deer just doesn't look like a blacktail. They're just, they're just different. And, and, and same as what you were saying with those huge muleys, like the, those bucks I have a couple inches out of the record book, you take a mule deer that's a couple inches out of the record book and that thing is huge yeah and again that'd be like a like a 168 inch mule deer like everybody no matter who you show be like that's huge and a lot of black tails are three points like i've got a couple of four points it's so rare so well, rare the funny thing is when i was on Haida Gwaii, i've never shot a sitka over two points like two by two right um and i, I i've heard of more but i almost i don't know if it's a genetic thing I've seen maybe one or two pictures, but yeah. like I've seen thousands of Sitka blacktail and I've never personally seen one that had any, any more than, than two. Yeah. I know a guy that fishes at one of the lodges on Haida Gwaii and he said he's seen one four point in like yeah. the last 20 years. 
One thing I want to go back and do, because I always just road hunted, to be honest with you. I did some elk hunting in a pretty remote part on Haida Gwaii. And I, I did shoot a blacktail back there one year that was like a, a bush blacktail. But the, the rest of the Sitka were all like, literally like we used to just drive to work and I'd have my rifle. And like, I remember one day driving to work, saw a deer, shot the deer, got it, threw it in the back of the truck, drove back to a bridge, tied it up hung it over the side of the bridge because it was like had the nice cool air coming with yeah, the river, yeah. went to work for the day. And like, there's nobody on the end of the island, right? Like, and then yeah. just came back, pulled them up off the bridge, threw them in the back of the truck and went back to camp for the day. Yeah. But what I, one, one of these kind of like bucket list ideas of mine is I'd like to go back to the island and do an alpine hunt because I do think there is some remote areas on that island that have to hold big deer because there's no, I mean, there's bears for sure, but they're not, there's no wolves. Um, predation is relatively low and there's, there's a lot of easy kill deer anyways for those bear. And I, I bet you, you could have a really cool mountain hunt and probably see some big ass deer, but the ground is not, it's a shitty place. I don't know if you ever spent any time on North Vancouver Island, but we're talking like 12 foot Salau and just like just veg like to the point where you're like swimming through it and it's just it's just a shitty place yeah. to be yeah i do think though th- that how to hunt app that steve isdall had with the videos was a game changer for me and i Black think there is hunting. some um uh quartering and gutless method videos on there as well that you could you're download right. it and then have them with you and he yeah. kind of goes through all that as well so yeah that was a great. We've got that, that one real. for uh, uh, the big game one. He has a sheep section too. So I actually okay. had that with me when we went on our sheep hunt because he shows like this is an eight year old ram, this is a nine year old ram, this is a ten year old ram, and like shows you. And yeah, there's one on seven year olds too. So like you can be sitting there looking at a sheep in the spotting scope, and then you actually have like a reference kind of. Yeah. But like again, I think that's a great tip to load your load your phone up with, you know, or take the app or load your phone up with pictures of like known aged rams. Yes. Oh, and a buddy of mine, he guided uh, up North for sheep. And before that first year before my hunt, I probably just drove them nuts. Cause every time I saw a picture of a sheep, if it was on somebody's wall, I would like, I'd take a picture of it and then go into the, the edit. And I'd like draw lines where I think there's rings. And I'd be like, is this Ram nine? And he'd be like, no, that was 10. Oh man. And they're like, just, Constantly, probably got so annoyed with it, but that's awesome. I, that's the level of obsession that yeah, I think you need though. Like it, I know you're going to chalk a lot of it up to luck, but to go out your first sheep hunt and bring something home that also doesn't happen by accident. You know, you clearly did your homework, and I think it pays off. I mean, what do they say? Success is when planning meets opportunity, or whatever it is. I like. I think it's important to get you know, obsessed to that degree, especially with these big hunts. Like that's what surprises me. People go to get ready for like these big mountain hunts and they're kind of half-assing it. And it's like, you got a lot of money on the line. You got a lot of time off work on the line. And then they run into something they don't expect. They end up coming out early, whatever the case may be. I just, I think you you kind of owe it to yourself in the mountains to kind of do your homework and be prepared both physically and mentally. For sure. Yeah. And we like always heard from people multiple people that have done sheep hunts and haven't gone, they say the year you start sheep hunting is the year your sheep is born. Right. So like we went in with kind of with that attitude and like, I was blown away, just like, so pumped to see sheep. Right. So like 
yeah, it was an unreal trip and probably there's probably not many people that get that lucky on the first one. Um, yeah. but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, definitely a bug. And once you do it once, uh, <laughs> pretty hard not to do it again. Yeah. I, I couldn't be more excited this year. I'm, I'm absolutely stoked and I'm surprised. I mentioned this on one of my last podcasts. I'm kind of with what, like if I was to write a list of the things I like about hunting and let's just remove all the, the actual killing of an animal, I'm writing about a sheep hunt. Yeah. Like that really far back there, kind of remote, super physically challenging, almost being stranded to a degree, crazy vistas and landscapes, the kind of exploration, like that, that that's sheep hunting. Yeah. And it was kind of funny. A lot of times on an elk or a deer hunt, I'm actually finding it difficult to like find what I'm looking for. Cause especially if I'm hunting down South in the States, like it's kind of hard to get more than four or five miles from a trail. Cause then you right. just start getting close to the next trail and it's hard to get that truly isolated and listen there. That's still difficult in BC, especially given what type of sheep season you go out there because there is a lot of competition and finding, I, I, I would say that's one of the hardest things to, to do. And you can't predict who's going to be like, that's what keeps me up at night. I'm like, man, if we spend all this time and energy getting back there and then there's somebody else got there the day before, like that's the type of shit that tends to keep me up at night. Right. But then with sheep too, what we found, it's like, it's so hard to see them. Like you don't know how good they are at glassing and how patient they are and how much work they're going to put into glassing. They might yep. like not even see them. And uh, yeah, like you said, with the the type of hunting, that's what like I noticed when we were up there, like you're waking up, you're having coffee, you're just talking because you're looking through your spotting scope. Whereas when you're like deer hunting, you know, you could be closer to the game and you're trying to, you're kind of like always hunting. And I found with like, sheep hunting and my, my last goat hunt, you're not, it almost feels like you're not always like have to be so switched on. Like when you're in your, your camp, you're still like glassing for sheep and you're still looking for them, but it, it's like a totally different way. And hunting something that's not nocturnal was unreal. Like deer, they are always, they move at night. Now you're trying to hunt something that sleeps at night. It like makes sense. There's the also, this is another reason why I like bear hunting and don't get me wrong. I love deer hunting and I love elk hunting, but there's this like stress to it, especially with like morning and evening, because like if you're not on the trailhead at dark and if you're not on your glassing knob, but before the sun comes up, like you are missing the most productive, like hour to two hours of the day. So you always have this like mild anxiety as soon as you wake up that you gotta, you're, you're fighting the clock. Whereas when I go bear hunting, I don't feel that it's like a, it's a much more relaxing kind of vibe to me. I mean, you're still working and there's still effort, but it doesn't have that same anxiety to it. For sure. And I've never had good luck bear hunting in the mornings. Never. My buddy Lander who runs primitive outfitting doesn't let his guys go out before three. Right. Yeah. It's like, no, you're just going to fuck it up. You're just going to blow them out. And anywhere where the, and not only that, the big guys aren't coming out till night anyways. So any, any smaller guys that you do see, if you go to make a play on them, you're just going to blow out the area for where the big guy would have came out tonight. So he's, he's really firm on that. And after being up there with him for a couple of years, it, I, you almost feel a little bit lazy, but it's like, right. there's just no point, man. Like if I'm not going to be effective, I'll stay back at camp and just do some work. But that's what the, Big bears, they're lazy too. They're sleeping 100%. in and not moving. So, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's do this because I want to be cognizant of, of time here. I'd love to hear about your goat and the fact that that was a draw tag, I think would be a great way to segue into us closing out with a few LEH tactics. 
Absolutely. Um, yeah, I've been putting in for GOAT for quite a while. Uh, and like the way the draws in BC work, it like it's pretty tough to draw any of the tags. Like I know people that have put in for a draw that's one in three odds for nine years and never won it. Um, so got super fortunate, won a draw, won a GOAT tag, um, started scouting, went up there a couple of times when I was like muley hunting and put some time in, in the zone, kind of figuring out where we wanted to go. Um, and then when it came down to the hunt, I kind of waited till October, let, let the goats kind of hair up a bit. Yeah. And, uh, me and a good buddy of mine went in and, uh, picked a, picked a mountain and we were glassing from the bottom and we spotted some goats. So we knew like there was some up there, uh, and it was just grueling. It was probably the hardest hunt that I've done to date, like no trail, like most of them, but, um, it was so dry. There's no water. So we had to, we planned to stay up there for three nights. So I can't even remember how much water we packed oh. up. We were like 65, 70 pounds packs just going up because we had so much water. Oh. Um, and uh, I always use that app, uh, Fat Maps, and they have a they have a thing on there where you turn on flats and it kind of shows you where there's some flat spots. And the, okay. the mountain we were hiking up, there was one tiny spot. And I was like, if that's not flat, we have nowhere to camp. <laughs> and we got up there and there was a flat spot. So like, it, it, we as we were kind of going up, we were glassing. And right when we found that flat spot, we glassed and we spotted some goats. So we hiked all day to get there. We literally turned our packs upside down, dumped them out, um, hiked this ridge, uh, found some, found a group of uh, three billies, and uh, yeah, got the goat the first night. If you're going to be there for three days, and uh, it was unreal. And again, same with like the sheep. I did not want to shoot a uh, nanny. Like, yeah. I was like, I don't care how big the billy is, but uh, which is yeah. almost kind of even tougher than a mature ram. Like I was stressing out about that on my sheep hunt this year. Like it, that, that takes an eye too. And even people have been doing it for a while, especially them older nannies, like they, they can, it can head fake you for sure. Right. And I would say we're super fortunate in the times that I spent, uh, scouting found quite a few goats and there was multiple times where I had like maybe five or six goats like in view in different okay. on different mountains. So I'm going with the spotting scope and like picking apart, like, okay, that one looks like this. And then find one that has a kid. So you know it's an Annie, right? And you're yeah. like, okay, that one look and then oh, this thing like big blocky shoulders, like uh, like just all the definitions of like what you read about. Mm -hmm. uh, like I can't imagine you hear the guys going on a goat hunt and they see one goat. Right. Like having only one goat and nothing to compare it to, that'd be so hard. That was my experience. Like I, I did see a big group of goats on the second day, but the one goat that I almost had a chance at, I just, some fog kind of rolled the wrong way. There was nothing else. Like he was the only one and he was just slowly picking his way or she, I mean, I, I think right. it was a, he, if I hadn't got to spend more time, I would not have pulled the trigger. Like I was not at that point where it's like, I'm confident enough. And even though you're allowed to shoot a nanny, it's still like, it's that thing where it's like, you let your lust get the better of you. Like we all know you're not supposed to shoot a nanny. So it's like, just don't, you know what I mean? Like, especially with mountain goats, I was shocked at more than any other animal. And I don't know the exact science, but because of how long they're with their kids, like there is a profound impact on the health of the herd by taking a nanny. Like it's not a one-to-one -one thing. Like you are, you are severely depreciating the kind of reproductive capabilities of that group of, of goats by taking out a nanny. Right. For sure. And we got, we, again, it was uh, lucky. We watched the Billy 
he went over a, a rise like right away from us and with the spotting scopes like we had confirmation that it was a bill <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh that helped and like i said it was definitely lots of scouting trips and we made a couple of plays while we were doing like the scouting trips um and then just yeah it all worked out and we went in the spot and the goats fed up kind of where we were hoping they would and managed to to take a nice billy that's amazing and uh it's crazy how strong they are like everybody talks about how tough goats are but like i have the footage like i have a phone scope so i set it up on my spotting scope first shot was right behind the shoulder like right through the lungs 300 yards away and it like it shook a little bit and then it kept eating it didn't run it didn't like nothing it just kept eating uh so i shot again in the shoulder that time and then it spun around and then it just kind of walked and fell over onto a tree like it never ran it never like it was like it just didn't care that's it was, crazy. It it's funny. I've, I've heard the exact same thing. Like that was the one piece of advice I got from a couple guys is like, just keep reloading. Like, I don't care how confident you are that the bullet went on the right spot until the thing is laid down and stopped breathing, put more rounds in them. Yeah. Yeah. And it was crazy how big they are too. Like right. got super fortunate and it was, it was a good Billy. It ended up going, um, Boone and Crockett just squeaked in. It didn't make BC book. Um, and it's one of the animals that the BC book is actually higher than Boone and Crockett. Okay. But BC has like, I don't know the exact number, but it's something like 80% of the world's population of goats is in BC. Really? It's a huge number like that. Like, don't quote me on that number, but it's a lot. So okay. that's probably why the book is that way. But um, how heavy it was, like I me and a buddy, like trying to get it out of that tree. And it was, it was massive. That's yeah. badass. I can't, I can't, I've, I've got the goat fever from this winter, as I was saying before the, before the podcast started. And I, they're just such a, they're a weird animal, man. Cause you tell somebody you're going goat hunting who doesn't understand mountain goats. And like, oh, that sounds really weird. Like they're picturing like coombs, you know, <laughs> like the right. little goats on the roof. And it's right. like, no. And then you show them a picture and people are like, what the, like that thing is crazy. I always say they look like bodybuilders. Yeah, like they have they these giant like shoulders and chests, and like they look like a yeti or something. Like, yeah, they're so freaky. The big, the big billies, yeah. And you can you can see that when you're when I was comparing them, saw some probably they were quite a bit bigger than the one I took. Like just the the way their stance, right? Yeah, uh, and, and with goats too, it's it's almost it's more of because like I hunt for meat, I enjoy all the meat. It's all awesome, but like. I can go to the store and buy meat if I had to, but like the goat hunt, it's like the adventure and it's almost like sheep hunting is there, but then like goats are like one level up, like where they live, like deer are in the nice Alpine where you're going to find a stream to camp by. And then you got sheep hunting where it takes a lot more effort and like the goats where they go, like we spotted a bunch of goats and we just, like the one mountain, we just called it No Look Mountain because, like, yeah. it doesn't Don't even matter. bother looking over there. Yeah. No. Oh, there's a goat, but there's zero way that I can get there. Yeah. So, like, just like the the adventure of the goat hunt is definitely what, like, I just can't wait to do it again. Like the hike was brutal getting in there. It was sketchy. It was it was just awesome. Yeah, that's the best, man. Okay, so let's let's switch gears here and talk LEH. And like I was mentioning before the call, everybody's got their own strategies. I don't want to like tell people like units and tag numbers and stuff, but I'll kind of, I'll, I'll start off. And I think what we're going to try and do is just give people some tips to maybe shift how they're looking at, at the LEH and maybe how they can increase their odds of, of, of pulling a decent tag. So the one thing I'd mentioned that I'd picked up on this year 
is that as an archery hunter, there's really very few uh, benefits to being an archery hunter in British Columbia. At the beginning of the call, you actually mentioned one of the only benefits is that late season whitetail uh, archery only. Like that's a legitimate archery season that the animals are easier to kill and because it's the rut for the whitetail and the, um, there's no other rifle hunters. So you don't have the additional pressure, but most of the archery seasons in BC are like September 1st to 9th for blacktail. Like what the, that doesn't even, there's not even any blacktail around. Like wh- why isn't it like October 25th to November 4th? Like if you're going to give me 10 days for archery only, it should be in the middle of the rut. Like that's the whole point about kind of increasing the difficulty. Anyways, I'm going on a rant. I'm always on the lookout. And the other kind of only true archery benefit is um, uh, Island Elk. There's a couple of like really great rut hunts for Roosevelt's on the island. And I noticed this year they added some archery only moose hunts. And the tip that I want to give is look for kind of alternative sources of pressure in the units that you're applying for. So some of the archery only units also have a high number of rifle, and they're not archery only units, but some of the archery LEH tags are in units that also have a high number of rifle LEH tags. So you are going to have guys shooting guns while you're trying to kill something with a bow. And that screwed me over twice last year during elk season. And I was like literally going to bed one night. I had elk bugling on the other side of the ridge, like 400 yards away. Like my morning is set. I'm going to bed a happy camper. Gunshots go off, arguably past legal shooting light. And my whole area is nuked, gone. Wake up to a ghost town, no elk, no nothing. And listen, I don't like everybody's got a right to hunt, but Coming with a bow, I'm trying to find areas where there's no other dudes with rifles. So anyways, a long-winded tip. Just take a moment and also look at the open seasons that overlap. Like, is your LEH just for a different class of animal? Like, for instance, is it giving you access to a three-quarter curl when there's also going to be a shitload of over-the-counter full curl hunters? Um, or are, are, can you kill any buck and there's still a shitload of over-the-counter four-point only buck hunters. So just when you're applying for your LEHs, take a look at both the other LEHs for that species and unit and the actual regulations for over-the-counter tags. And just remember to look for alternative sources of pressure in your same unit, which might also come from different species. Like if there's no moose tags in that unit, but they've got an over-the-counter mule deer tag, that could also increase pressure and, and change animal behavior for the unit. Yeah, for sure. And the draws in BC, like they don't ever really get better. Like some, you hear about the guys in the States where they get their points and it sounds like that system has its flaws as well. But, uh, and I mean, the good thing is every year is a fresh chance. Um, my kind of tactic is like for my, for my elk, uh, I always put in for one on the Island. 10 years ago, I picked a zone that I heard has good elk in it. And I just keep putting in for the same one. Odds are like one in 120. So I really have no plans of ever actually getting to hunt elk there. Um, but, and then just like kind of with the odds, like a, I think a lot of people don't realize that when it tells you the odds are a hundred to one, that was last year's odds. So you could 
like sometimes the odds flip flop because people see that. So they put in for the one that had 50 to one. And then next year, that's the one with a hundred to one. And the other one was 50 to one, but without having points, there's no real, uh, like tactic that I have. I kind of, I pick my LEA chance and then hope for the best. And then when the draw results come out, then I'll try and plan my whole season around that. Like, we're lucky in BC where there's always something to do. It's not like if you don't draw, you're not going hunting that year. Um, but yeah, I just kind of wait till they come out and make a plan. Yeah. And I feel like that's the only reason I don't bitch too loudly about, cause I really, I am very frustrated with the BC draw system. I think it's terrible and lazy, but the fact that our over the counters, it, it, the options are so numerous. It's kind of like, it seems like a shitty thing to complain about, you know, but I would prefer and you're right. The, with point creep, the point systems um, have have just as many flaws to them as well. So, like, there is no perfect system. Um, I think another tactic that I would recommend to people, and this is assuming you have a more flexible lifestyle, but sometimes it's hard to decide what animals to apply for when. Like, you could basically apply for any species between September and October. So how do you know which ones to apply for? So what I do when I'm planning out my year is start with the species that only exist during certain portions. Like for example, you're not going to hunt anything else in August other than sheep. So if you want to draw, if you want to go in for a sheep tag and not worry about it overlapping with something else, it's probably best to look in August. Same thing with goats. For me, I like winter goat hunting. I shouldn't say I like winter goat hunting. I'm sure hunting goats not in winter is better, but it, it, it's the only animal during that time of year that I can go hunt other than bison. So that's the other thing is I'll, I'll kind of sandwich my year um, and I'll say, okay, well, goat's going to be in February. So I only have to look at units that have goat in February and then I'll kind of reverse engineer everything else back around that and try and think of like the year as a whole. But then sometimes it's just a waste of time because the draw odds are so low that like you put all that time and effort into it and you don't draw anything anyways. I mentioned earlier, it's six years I've been putting in for the BC draw. This will be year seven and I've never pulled a tag whatsoever. Have you gotten anything else other than your goat? Um, nope. That was the first tag I won. Yeah. Um, crazy. And- and, and it's funny, like you said, to, to like plan your year. Like I have a sheep draw I put in for every year. I'm yep. putting in for the goat and the elk. And I'm always like, cause you, there's a chance that you could win more yeah. than one. And then like, then what do you do? I know. And even I joke with my wife that like, I'm scared to win that elk tag because that is going to cost me a fortune. Like yeah. now I'm going to be taking the ferry to go set up trail cameras and scout and like learn the area. I don't, I know nothing about it. So like I would... You have a 10 day season and a once in a lifetime, literally you'll probably never draw it again. Tag. Like you got to go all in and it would be a, I mean, I, I want to do it, but it, it's going to be a lot if you ever get that opportunity for sure. Yeah. It is almost more of a daydreaming exercise. Like I basically spend a week or two, like fantasizing about what all these great, and then they come out and you didn't get any of them. And then you just like start back over and, and daydream the next year, you know? Right. And, and you worry about like, Oh, what if I got my sheep and my elk? Yeah. But you're, that's probably never going to happen. So you don't have to worry about it, but. Well, and I'm, I have a sheep hunt over the counter planned with two friends this summer and we're going in August. So I put in for Kamloops Lake. Yeah. Cause it's like impossible. And I'm like, if I'm going to cancel on anybody, 
it's going to be for Kamloops Lake because nobody in their right mind, like I could phone any hunter in British Columbia and say, I have to cancel my hunt with you. I drew a Kamloops Lake sheep tag and everybody's going to be okay with that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. And, and you wouldn't have to, I mean, and you can only take one sheep a year, but your sheep hunt's going to be early season probably, right? Yes. August. And then the Kamloops Lake one, that's a later in the year, but if your luck would, you'd have the Kamloops Lake tag and then you'd have a, a huge 10 year old Ram in front of you up yeah. there. <laughs> I, yeah. I wouldn't even go. I wouldn't even want the, uh, yeah. With the, the Kamloops Lake one, it's, it's that it's kind of like, obviously I've never done it, but you hear of guys like if you put in the work, like your chances of getting a sheep are very, very good. Uh, yeah. I think I don't want to use the term slam dunk, but also yeah. zone a, the odds this year are 1500 to one. Yeah. I think it's the single least likelihood to draw a tag in the regs or, or in the LEH. I can't think of anything else. Yeah. Pit River Elk is up there, but I don't know if it's over a thousand. Yeah. 1500 man. And then zone yeah. B, which is like a little piece of Kamloops Lake. It was depending on the season. One season was 760 to one. And the other one was 500 to one. Yeah. It's crazy. Oh, that's the other one I put in was for Spence's bridge. Because that's the other one that's like, those are just be like, that is an impossible sheep hunt. Like the only way, unless you have 50, 60 grand to fly to the NWT, the only way you're going to get a sheep like that and get that type of a hunt is by pulling a tag like that. So part of me is like, well, why not? You know what I mean? Like the odds are already so slim. You might as well just shoot the moon. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Um, I want to be cognizant of time, so let's wrap it up. I feel like there was a ton of territory that we didn't even cover. So what I'm thinking is maybe late summer, let's plan for like a full gear chat because you'll be kind of ready for for your hunt. Maybe either before we could do it before I leave for sheep because then I'd be all like late July. I'd be ready for sheep. The LEHs would come out so we'd know what hunts we were planning for and we could both kind of do like a bag breakdown. Yeah, of, awesome. of what we're going to run this year for our different hunts and people really find that stuff valuable. So let's kind of put that on the books and we'll like late July or something like that. We'll try and get together if you're, if you're down. Yeah, no, that sounds great to me. And of course, by then it seems like the gear list is always changing and there's things I didn't even know I wanted to upgrade until I read or research about this or that. So yeah, that'll be uh, that'll be interesting for sure. Yeah. There's always an excuse to go spend more money. Oh, it's crazy. And they're like, okay, I'm done. Well, I didn't even know that existed. (laughs) Yeah. 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 All right, man. That was awesome. I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. It's been great. All right. We'll chat soon. Okay. Have a good one.